Welcome, my name's Dave. Excited to enter into a time of teaching. Um, so if you've got, we got, we, we had a lot today with the dedication, so we got to move. We're going to move fast. I'm going to start fast. I'm going to try to start like I normally finish. I'm going to try to start fast. So grab your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 12. We're walking through the book of John, but we have called this chapter uh, a very, we've seen something very strange and a strange connection to the Christmas season. And so, um, again, John 12 is not about the birth of Jesus, you've got to go elsewhere to see that. But there are some strange, interesting connections in this chapter. We talked about that last week. You can go back and read about the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary of Bethany. That's the first sort of subtle parallel. But we're going to look and see another parallel this week. And so we're kind of asking the question, um, when we talk about the nativity at Christmas, we're talking you know, about Jesus in the manger, which was a feeding trough, surrounded by the wise men from the Far East and the shepherds who the angels had proclaimed, scared the, angels, or the shepherds at first, but then they said, a new king is born, go visit him, he's going to be in the town of David, Bethlehem, and so they go there, so they're around the manger, and then there's some animals that are kind of just get to be privy to this, probably not understanding the fullness of what they're a part, and there's going to be another animal that gets to be a part of cosmic history, and you know, none of these animals are getting any NIL deals, even though their likeness is used on mantles worldwide. Tough for the animals, but they'll be all right. And then, and then we've been looking at all that nativity, the nativity of his birth, and we've been saying, is John, is he? I mean, we're kind of wondering out loud together. Is he purposefully making some of these connections to this particular these particular ideas, but at the end of Jesus' life and ministry? Are, are, are these parallels meant to be seen as something more? Does John want us to pay attention to those for some particular reason? And, and should we pay attention to those parallels that John is drawing out for our good even today? Remember, John is writing his gospel probably two decades after the other gospels, and so people would have known the nativity of his birth, that story, but John wants to say, maybe Jesus came for another reason. And so we've been calling this little, this little mini-series still within the book of John, but this Advent series we've been calling the nativity of his death. Oh, great, we get to talk about death at Christmas time. Why would we do that? Why does John want us to think about his birth while we're thinking about his death? And so... Let's see if we can find it out. So I'm going to read what we read last week, and then also the verses we're looking, we're looking at this week. I won't read to the end of the chapter, just for time's sake. So you can read that, and then we'll talk about the last part of the chapter next week. So let's start in chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now this is coming after a long series of Jesus preaching and doing miracles and proclaiming himself to be the long-expected Savior, the Messiah of the Jewish people, but not just the Jewish people, John will say, but the whole world, for God loved the whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation, if they come to the feet of Jesus, they can find eternal life. That's John's big message, and he wants people to know about that, and so he's recounted for us Jesus' life teaching, his miracles, his mission, and then we get near the very end of that, right before, so this is at the beginning of the week which we call his Passion Week, which is the week that he's arrested, then crucified, and then on the third day, rises again. So that's where we are in the story if you're just jumping in. And so um, let's start in chapter 12, verse 1. So this is six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany, which is a town not far from Jerusalem, walking distance. Jerusalem was the capital of the nation. 
uh, where Lazarus was. Remember in chapter 11, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. After four days of laying in the tomb, Jesus brings him back to life as his sort of final, that's the kind of power I have, statement. So they gave a dinner for him there, gave a dinner to Jesus there to celebrate Jesus, and Martha was serving them. That's Lazarus' sister. And Lazarus was one of the guests reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure nard, expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, and, and John gives us this little editorial note. This was the one who was about to betray Jesus, just in case you didn't know. Judas is one of the 12, inner circle, but he betrays Jesus and gives him over to the authorities. It's Judas who said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared so much about the poor, but because he was a thief and he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of whatever was put in the money bag. So Jesus answered Judas and said, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. A strange thing to say. For you always have the poor with you, Jesus said, but you do not always have me. Again, remember, don't jump ahead in the story. We're reading narrative. They don't know that he's about to go die on a cross. What is he talking about? The day of my burial. So remember that as we're reading all this. We go on, verse 9. Then a large crowd of Jews learned he was there, and he came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. So there's a whole crowd that wants to see this man who Jesus has raised from the dead, and, of course, the man who raised him. That's Jesus. But the chief priest, verse 10, had decided to kill Lazarus also. Get rid of the evidence. Because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and their authority and believing in Jesus and his authority. Here we go to the text we'll look at today. Then, the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And here he quotes the Old Testament. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples, at that point, did not understand these things. However, when Jesus was glorified, and here, this means when Jesus was, res, uh, was, was cross and resurrection. So that's John talks about when he was glorified, when he was, the fullness of his res, revelation was, was finished. So the cross and the resurrection Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, of course, if you know the Gospels, you know, you know, John could have mentioned, yeah, Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection taught us (laughs) how to understand everything that had happened. And so they finally understood. Verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify, testify about Jesus and what he had done. This is also why the crowd met him there on the road when he's coming into Jerusalem, because they had heard that he had done this sign. So they're there for the signs. That's important. Just make a little note. They're primarily there because he raised someone from the dead. They want to see more stuff like that. Then the Pharisees said to one another. So the Pharisees are the religious group that was trying to kill Jesus because they wanted to keep all the power and authority. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see... You've accomplished nothing. They're talking to one another. 
Look, the world has gone after him. And in another sort of ironic comment, they see the world going after him. Little did they know how the world would go after him. Literally, the whole world, all around this globe, people go after Jesus, worship him as the king. So this was not the last time people would gather around Jesus and cry, Hosanna. We already gathered around in Seattle, Washington, long ways away from Jerusalem, and we sang this morning, Hosanna, Hosanna. The king of Israel, the king of God's people. So they had no idea how prophetic what they were saying really was. The whole world will go after him. Okay, so that's the next part of this, what we're calling the nativity of death. Now, you said like, well, where's the death in it? Well, let's talk about that. We know that Jesus is going not into his victory or taking the, thr- the literal throne. He's actually going in to offer himself as a ransom. We'll talk about that. That's why it's the nativity of his death. The, the, the picture that's being painted for us by John is this paradoxical picture of the most powerful, mighty God giving himself to be killed. What? That's not what I like to think about when I come to Christmas and I think about little baby Jesus. I don't like to think about the, the one who came to give his life. Okay. So we'll get more into that sort of big idea of the gospel but we got to talk a little bit about donkeys and about palm trees and about Hosanna, just so you can understand really what's going on here. So it says, the next day the crowd came, and they were coming from all over the Mediterranean world. There'd been, there'd been a diaspora. Jewish people had moved away to the far parts of the Mediterranean world, and they would come back on the, on the Passover week. Now, it can be confusing because I'm talking about Christmas, and I'm going to talk about Hanukkah a little bit, but I'm only using those as interesting parallels because what we're actually talking about in the text is not in the winter but in the spring for the Passover festival which is the biggest of all the festivals it's where they came and celebrated God's deliverance for the Jewish people from Egypt and slavery and he did it by telling them to take a lamb and to kill that lamb had to be a firstborn lamb a perfect lamb and, and put the blood over their doorpost. And so the very final sign that God said to Pharaoh is, if you don't let my people go, I'll send an angel of death. And if, they, if your house does not have blood over it from the lamb, then your firstborn will die. So that's what they, they're coming to celebrate. And so what's interesting, and I, I just need you to picture this, Jesus is coming into the city, but there could be over 2 million, maybe 3 million people that might come into Jerusalem for this festival. It's a huge festival. And a lot of people need to bring a lamb to sacrifice. So this is interesting. Just think about this. So as Jesus is coming into the city, probably like five minutes before he came in and 10 minutes after, there was probably cartloads of other lambs. (laughs) Or, you see? Lambs were, all these lambs were coming into the city. Interesting to think about. Millions of people were there. We don't know exactly how many, but it was a lot of people who had come for the Passover celebration. Okay, so, now, 
this large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was also coming to Jerusalem. And they'd heard stories about Jesus. The rumors were out. And they wanted to see him for themselves. And so probably some messenger ran into the city and said, Jesus is on his way. And as we learned from a couple weeks ago, Jesus, for some reason, likes to walk slow, which I can appreciate. Any slow walkers in the room? You think I'm a slow walker? Walk with my wife. She is the slowest. She just takes her time. It's a lot like Jesus. Okay. So he's walking slow. The messenger probably runs ahead. People run out from the city. There was, as we can see, there's going to also be the people that followed him from Bethany, that wanted to see what he was going to do next. And so the crowd coalesces around him, and they start to see what had been predicted in the Old Testament. They start to say, I think this is it. I think the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of God's people is finally coming to take his throne. And, and they remember what they'd always been taught from the Hebrew Scriptures that we sing out to this Messiah when he comes, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they start to sing They sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So Jesus finds a young donkey and he sits on it, just as it's written. I mean, the disciples see this after the fact. They're like, oh, that's what was going on. So Jesus says, I need a a donkey. And he finds a donkey and he rides into the city through the gates on a donkey. And, And it reminds after the fact, they remember this is what was predicted, that in the Old Testament it was said, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Talk about that in a second. That's actually a combination of two Old Testament prophecies together. And his disciples at first didn't understand. They were just overwhelmed at what was happening, probably singing with the people. And then after the fact, they realized what had actually happened, that this was Jesus fulfilling the prophecy about himself. That this is how he would come. Okay. So, let's talk real quick. I just want you to know what we're crying out when we cry out, Hosanna. So this is originally a transliteration of two Hebrew words. So we take the Hebrew words, we just transliterate it, and, and, and it's written then into the Greek. But it literally means in the Hebrew, give salvation now. So that's what we're crying when we say Hosanna. Give salvation now. So they see the king coming in and they say, give salvation now. And what would they be thinking in their head? Get rid of these Romans. Maybe even get rid of these corrupt officials. Maybe even get rid of these Pharisees. But they're thinking about Jesus right now giving them salvation. Give it to me now. And they're probably thinking in an external sense. That's how we tend to think. We're very external beings, us human beings. And so they're, they're thinking, this, finally the king is coming. They're so excited. Now this term Hosanna, by this time in, in history, had already turned from that, just that straight transliteration into just sort of a common phrase for um, act, uh, acclamation of the king or praise of the king. And so every Jew would have known this because it comes from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was part of Hallel, which is sung every morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the other big three feasts that everybody would come to. So they're very familiar with this term, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they know that, that it's, it's singing about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King. We know that from the Midrash, which was uh, the second century A.D. They started to write down what people thought about different passages of the Scripture. So we can have, um, we understand that this time in history, Psalm 118 was already being understood as a messianic psalm singing about the coming Messiah. So a hundred years earlier when Jesus comes in, when they sing Hosanna, they're definitely singing, the Messiah is here. So it's just good to know about. 
Now, what's interesting is that this singing of Psalm 118 had also become a part of the Hanukkah celebration, which is going on right now, right? Where they would sing Psalm 118 about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King of Israel. So all this is happening around Jesus. Now, what about these palm branches? So for at least about 150 years, palm branches had also been directly associated with Hanukkah. And part of the reason that is is because um, the Maccabean Revolution, which I talked about a few weeks ago, which is when there was a Syrian king that was ruling over um, the Jewish people, and they they revolted, and they removed him, and and he was trying to get them to worship other gods besides Yahweh. And so um, they have victory over him, and part of that celebration of uh, the Maccabean Revolution was to sing songs of praise with palm branches, we're told. So there is this connection again with this uh, palm branches and Hanukkah, which I think is so interesting. So in short, waving these palm branches um, was associated and signaling sort of this nationalistic hope, right? Because the Maccabean revolt was just a political revolution. It was not a spiritual revolution. Only in so much as they got rid of of idolic worship and, and returned to the worship of the one true God. So it really, palm branches was a sign at that time in history of sort of nationalism, which is interesting, right? So when the people pick up the palm branches, like, this is just like the Maccabean revolution. We're going to get rid of the Romans, There's going to be an overthrow, and Jesus is going to take his literal, physical throne back. It's going to be great, just like what we experienced 150 years ago. So it's probably going on in the minds of a lot of the people who are a part of this singing of Hosanna and waving palm branches. And of course, this is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday uh, of the week of Easter week, right? So that's so interesting to understand that as this is happening, there are, there is, um, it's a mix, okay? We don't know how many of the people are thinking nationalistically about, oh, we have another Maccabean revolution, and how many are thinking, oh, we have the coming of the Old Testament Messiah, and, and we don't know. We're not told, um, but it's good to keep in mind, because we're going to talk about what happens next. <laughs> okay, so then why the donkey? So you're wondering, why the donkey? Why not? The war horse, right? Why not the war horse? Okay, so a donkey is a beast of burden. I think that's interesting. And some, some would ask, is Jesus trying to dampen expectations? Perhaps. I don't, I don't think so. Um, there is a sense in which by that time in history, the donkey was so highly regarded by, in the Hebrew scriptures that the, the donkey had become kind of like the Mercedes Benz of <laughs> the animal world, Okay. So, so I don't think Jesus was just trying to get people, hey, tamper down the excitement. I think he's actually instead riding in on the Mercedes-Benz, of, but he's also fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. So Zechariah 9 is what John quotes here when after Jesus' glorification, after his resurrection, then they realize what Jesus was doing, why he told some, we, we know from the other Gospels, he told some of his disciples to go get him a donkey. So when it says here, he found a donkey, that's just sort of, he told some people to find a donkey. John just gives it to us in the short version. Jesus found the donkey. He needed a donkey. He wanted to run in. He wanted to fulfill this prophecy of Zechariah 9. So let's read that real quick so we just have what they would have had in their mind, okay? 
Okay, so Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So this is a special donkey. It's a young male donkey, uh, which would have thought to be sort of a perfect donkey, okay? Now, he fulfills this scripture. He's saying, I'm that long-awaited Messiah, that long-awaited king. I'm him. I'm him. Now, when you read that, you might have discerned something different in the way John quotes it, right? Like, well, he didn't quote it exactly. That's why we, so you're thinking, what is going on here? Because what John actually says is, do not be afraid, rather than saying, rejoice greatly, shout in triumph. He says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So, what's going on here? Now, this was so common, they didn't. You know, they didn't have copy and paste back then, <laughs> so um, they would often take two prophecies and fit them into one to say Jesus is actually fulfilling multiple things at once, and they didn't think they needed to explain that to you, they just figured you'd figure out what's going on. So actually, the do not be afraid, most scholars think, he's actually quoting another prophecy in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40. So let's read that really quickly, we throw it up there, here's Isaiah 40, it says this. Zion, that's another word, a name for Jerusalem. Zion, herald of good news. Go up on a mountain, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it, and here it is, do not be afraid. So do not be afraid to raise your voice. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Not, not, not just your king, but your God is here. See, the Lord God comes with strength. And his power establishes his rule. And everybody's saying, amen, take out those Romans, just like the Maccabeans. I'm so excited, finally we'll have political freedom. But wait, what's the rest of the prophecy about the suffering servant of Isaiah 40? Let's keep reading. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. Okay, I'm still liking it. This is good. He protects his flock like a shepherd. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He gathers the lambs in his arms. Jesus talks about gathering in his own. And he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. And so what the people wanted was Jesus coming in like a war horse, on a war horse, right? Like this is how most normal kings come in to take enemy territory. Come with an army and a war horse. I mean, think Napoleon. He comes in on a war horse, not a donkey. But wait, this had always been prophesied about this king. This king's different than every king. The king is gentle. The king gathers his lambs in his arms. He's like a shepherd with his flock. This is a man of peace, not a man of war. And yet, we still don't need to be afraid. That's good news. Even though our king comes in on a donkey, even though our king is humble, even though we'll find out our king is coming to give his life as a ransom, not to take the throne, but to give his life, don't be afraid, Jesus says. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. I am the king you've been waiting for. And the question is, are you okay with that? (laughs) 
If you continue to read Zechariah 9, 10, and 11, you'd see some other promises of this different kind of king. This king who did not meet everyone's expectations. This gentle king. So let me read that for you. Uh, I don't think we have a slide for this. Just listen as I read it. God, God further promises through this fulfilled prophecy. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, this is God, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Three things sort of stand out here. I get this from a scholar named Don Carson. One is that the coming gentle king is associated with, do you hear it? The cessation of war. We're not there, are we? This was understood by John to be the defining work of Jesus, that he is the king to end all war. The second thing, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the proclamation of peace to all nations. So he's going to not only give peace to Israel, but peace to all nations. We're not there yet, are we? The coming of the gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners. So these themes, which we've already talked about in John, now come to light in this, what's called the triumphal entry. That Jesus is drawing their attention to these fulfillments. He's trying to help them change their expectations because if they don't change their expectations, they're going to miss what he's doing. So don't miss it, you guys, okay? Don't miss it. Jesus knew that it would be hard for you to know that his rule and reign starts in here rather than out there. Because all we ever think about and pray about is out there changing, we often forget to pray about in here changing. So he knew it was hard, so he quotes these verses that this is how it's always been. We've always been waiting for this. And yes, one day we will remove all those war makers. But I gotta change here in the hearts of my people first before I get rid of the war makers. And the way I'm going to do it, we, we come to find out. This is why it was so backwards. It was so upside down. It was so inside out. He said, I can't come and just take them away now. I actually have to go and give myself to them to crucify. What? I have to be the Passover lamb that you've all come from around the world to worship. I actually have to become that lamb, the perfect lamb, God in the flesh. God become lamb. God become sacrifice. God's blood for your life. That's the gospel. And you're not going to understand it. It's going to be hard for you because you want me to get rid of the vipers. <laughs> but I've got to go into the vipers den and give my life so that you can truly be free. And so as Jesus walks in to the city, this long-awaited moment, and, 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 and he is being honored by the people, in one sense it's so beautiful, but Jesus knows 
what he's actually come to do. And it's so sad. Right? If you know how the story goes, it's so sad. They're saying, save us now. And as soon as he's arrested and he doesn't meet their expectations, what's going to happen? They're going to run. They're going to hide. They're going to pretend that they don't know him. That's exactly what happens. Even those closest to him. Even Peter, who's the one that Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church. Peter denies Jesus, and we hear about him later in John's Gospel three times, that he even knows him. The people who sang Hosanna are the same people that we'll see later in John, at least some of them that are in the crowd saying, crucify him, release Barabbas, kill Jesus. He didn't meet our expectation. He didn't give us now the salvation that we really wanted, even as he's giving us the salvation that we really need. So, they're honoring him with their lips, but what kind of honor is this? So my next point here, so I need some water. What kind of honor is this? Hosanna, Hosanna. Six days later, crucify him, crucify him. What kind of honor? This is honor without respect. Honor without respect leads to death. Just listen to what happens in John 18. Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. Pilate says, listen, Jesus, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests, they're the ones that handed me or you over to me. What have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, right? Yeah, that's what everyone expected. But my kingdom's not of this world. So they don't fight so that I, because if they did fight, I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here, which is why I'm handed over to you. So he's sort of explaining what I tried to explain to you. Jesus' kingdom's different. Pilate asks him then, you're a king then? Jesus replies, You say that I'm a king. I was born for this nativity of his birth, and I have come into this world for this. Wait, what's this? We now know to die, nativity of his death. I came into the world to live and to die for my people, to testify to the truth, Jesus says. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is of the truth. And look at what Pilate says, the most powerful man in the region. He says, what is truth? That's a good question. What is truth? The most powerful don't know what truth is. They live upon a truth that is convenient for their power. But when they stand in front of Jesus, they can't help but confess, I don't know what truth is. So, after he'd said this, John writes for us, he went out to the Jews. That's Pilate went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging this man, Jesus. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. 
So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? I'll release him. They shouted back, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary, John tells us. He was actually trying to overthrow Rome. Strange. Then Pilate took Jesus and they had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe, mocking him. And they kept coming up to Jesus and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were slapping his face. And at least some that were there witnessing his triumphal entry are there by their silence or even by their words agreeing with this mockery of the King of the Jews. This, now now don't just think here about, oh, how terrible those people. This is the story of God's people over and over, over again. As much in the last two years of the Christian church as it was before Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Ancient Israelites did it. The people of Jesus' day did it. And we do it today. We honor him with our lips and we disrespect him with our lives. When he doesn't give us what we want, we turn on him. When he acts in unexpected ways, we wonder if he's good. Ezekiel 33 predicted and spoke about people like us, people like them. Ezekiel says this in verse 33. So my people come to you in crowds. They sit in front of you. And hear your words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them you are like a singer of of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully on an instrument. They hear your words, but they do not obey them. Jesus said the same thing. Matthew 15, he will quote Isaiah 29, another place. Jesus says this, you hypocrites. The prophet Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. We make a law unto ourselves, a law that we can keep, a law of honor and shame, but we disrespect our maker, our savior, the God who loves us. But I keep all of the human commands we've we've established. I, I live according to those. I avoid shame. I honor with my lips. I say the right things. I don't let people know about the things that I do that aren't according to the commands. What's so bad about that? Jesus says everything. He says hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. It is true that Christ is the only rightful landing place for our greatest gifts, 
our greatest gifts of honor. We saw that last week with Mary of Bethany. He is the right landing place. But she doesn't just give him a gift, she gives him her heart. The whole shebang, all of it. She is really as different as you could be from Judas Iscariot, right, in that story. He was honoring Jesus with his mouth, even by following Jesus and being in his company and doing, you know, being the treasurer. But his was a kiss of shame. He said all the right things. Nobody knew until it was all over that he was a thief that he wanted dishonest gain, that he was going to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he was going to tell the Romans who this Jesus was by kissing him on the cheek, a kiss of dishonor. So the, que- the question you have to ask is, is this King Jesus, is he just the king that you sing about at Christmas as your king? Are you honoring him with your lips, or are you respecting him with your heart? with everything that comes out and overflows from the heart, Scripture tells us. That is where we honor Christ truly. Perhaps you don't know yet. That's okay. Study, consider this Jesus. Is he the kind of king that you'd want to live under his rule for all time? The king who doesn't come on a war horse but on a donkey. The king who gives his life as a ransom for yours rather than taking the throne that's actually his so that many would be able to have a chance to come into his kingdom and not be cast out. Is he the king that you want to serve? Who is the king of your heart? Not the king of your lips, the king of your heart. Christ's kingdom is an inside-out kingdom. Make sure when you sing King Jesus, your heart is saying, he's my king. Okay, so why, why does this sort of easy believism that I think Jesus is, or John is highlighting that happens at the nativity of death, why, why this easy believism, why, why talking about the triumphal entry, why at Christmas time, why are you ruining this? <laughs> Merry season for us, Dave. Well, because I love you. Because <laughs> I honestly love you. And I want you, your heart to sing. And this is my great fear. The danger of only gathering around the nativity of Christ's birth, kind of the joy, the gifts, the excitement, the hopefulness, what will this baby become? You can accidentally fall into this easy believism or or expecting that you know what Jesus' rule and reign will look like. But if we gather around the nativity of his death, John is showing us, no, this is what this baby came to do. Are you okay with that? He had to die for you. So we must gather, even as we gather around the nativity of his life, we have to gather around the nativity of his death at Christmas time to remember, remember, it's not quite so tranquil and nice. There's blood that must be shed because our sin is that powerful. And only the power of God's blood can save us from our consequence, which is eternal separation from him. So you need to see it. 
get, get wrapped up in the, the, the niceness and the, and the merriness? Do you see what the king came to do? I think at this time of year, there's more honoring of Jesus with words of songs and praise. We'll, sing, we'll read the stories to our children. We'll light candles and sing Silent Night. But our hearts will be so far from the true king because we never gather around what he came to really do. And it's hollow and it's cheap grace. And it doesn't lead to life. And you're still dead in your sins. And Jesus is begging you to gather. John is begging you to see what this king came to do and gather around the consequence of your sin, which is his cross and the power of God through the resurrection. And then your heart will really sing. Then this will really become the most wonderful time of the year. That God didn't stay distant but came near in the incarnation, in the, the baby Jesus, and lived the life that we couldn't live to die the death that we should die and raise to life that we can raise to if we put our trust in him. That's what Christmas is all about. Did you know that? We are in danger as the church, not just our church, but the church in America, even the church in the world, of, of just becoming a church of kissing Judases. At the very first sign of pushback or opposition, when things don't go as expected, when following Jesus is harder than we thought, when the life of the cross presents itself to us, when humility is required of us, we stop worshiping the king who came in on a donkey. We either turn and make him into the king that has the sword that comes on the war horse, or we just leave him all together and we join whoever's in power and we start singing with them. Soren Kierkegaard is a great person to bring up right now. That's supposed to be funny. Okay, so everyone's like, Kierkegaard? You're bringing up Kierkegaard at a time like this? Of course I am. Kierkegaard was particularly worried about the church becoming a bunch of kissing Judases. He, he lived in the 1800s, middle of the 1800s, in, uh, he was Danish, and everybody was Lutheran. Like, you just born Lutheran. Like, it was just on the birth certificate, and they're Lutheran. And everybody would go to church, and they would honor Christ with their church attendance, and they would do the right things, but their hearts were dead, and he was like, with a paddles, he was trying to wake them up. And so he says some strange things, but he also says some funny things. So I want to read to you some words that I, I, I am reading Kierkegaard again right now, <laughs> for some reason, just my Advent reading, Kierkegaard. I was reading this this week, and I said, this is terrifying particularly to me as a pastor, because it wasn't just those coming to church, it was those standing where I'm standing who were the most dead, who were the most kissing Judases. Let me read you what he wrote. The parson, or the pastor, does indeed preach about these glorious ones who sacrifice their lives for the truth. As a rule, the parson is justified in assuming that there is no one present in the church who could entertain the notion of venturing upon such a thing. When he is sufficiently assured of this by reason of the private knowledge he has of the congregation as its pastor, he preaches glibly, proclaims vigorously, and wipes away the sweat, which is what I've been doing. Did you hear what he's saying? He's saying the pastor knows nobody in his congregation will actually live like Jesus and give their life for Jesus, so he can go preach a great sermon that sounds really great, and he's not, 
he's not at all afraid that anyone will actually do it. So he can preach and sweat all he wants. So then, this is what Kierkegaard finishes this. He says, If on the following day one of those strong and silent men were to visit the parson at his house, announcing himself as one whom the parson had carried away by his eloquence, so that he had now resolved to sacrifice his life for the truth, what would the parson say? He would address him thus, Why, merciful Father, in heaven, how did such an idea ever occur to you? Travel, divert yourself, take a laxative. That's me, I've said that. Some of you have come and said, I want to give my whole life to Jesus. I say, hold on, don't, don't go overboard here. You need to go overboard. You need to give your whole life. You don't need to travel, divert yourself, or take a laxative. You need to do the thing that God is telling you in your heart to do. Surrender your heart to him. Do something. Give something. Go beyond the expectation of you. Live beyond honor and shame and live the life that Jesus has prepared for you. And you're not the first to do it. We live, Hebrews tells us, in a cloud of witnesses. Let's read that one real quick. We live in, you're going to love this. Final thing. Final thing. Hebrews 12 says this. You may have heard this before. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, for the joy, he entered Jerusalem and gave his life as a ransom. He endured the cross, despising the shame He saw the shame, and he says, I don't care about that shame. I'm going to walk right into that shame, and I'm going to hang on a cross, the most shameful act for the God-man Jesus Christ. And he says, shame. He despised it. And he sat down at the right hand of God, the true throne, not of just Jerusalem, but of the cosmos. He sat right there. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't travel and divert yourself and take laxative when you're feeling the impulse of the Holy Spirit to go do something that's unexpected and perhaps even shameful. Do something this holiday season. Don't just feel feelings. Do something. Find some way to bring the upside-down kingdom, the inside-out kingdom of Jesus Christ to the world as it is in heaven. Do what Jesus did. Bring heaven to earth. What is the thing he wants you to do? Let him be king of your heart. Let him rule you. Obey him. Do something. Maybe that's a phone call that you've been dreading to make. Maybe you need to reconcile with somebody who you are so angry at. Maybe you need to forgive somebody that you've been waiting your whole life to forgive. Maybe you need to bring cookies to somebody who is your enemy. I don't know what it is. God was going to put something on your heart, and will you let him be king and do something? Don't just honor him with your lips this holidays. Honor him with your heart and do something that he tells you to do. Let him be the king of your heart. Let's pray.